0: So for our Bibles, um, I want you to turn to John 19, but I'm not going to read that. I'm going to do something a little bit different right now. As we gather this Good Friday 2022, our world is quickly escalating into a real possibility of a world war. I will not dwell on this long, but I will mention three developments that have occurred over the last two days. Um, The first one happened yesterday. I wasn't going to say anything to anybody about it, but then I turned on national news last night, and they were actually showing what I'm about to tell you, and some of you know what I'm about to say. Um, An American drone, I believe, um, orchestrated this through NATO, but it's pretty much common knowledge that there are a lot of Americans calling the shots, running the war in Ukraine. And they took out, with two of our cruise missiles, uh, locking in with um, this drone, and they took out Russia's flagship, their number one ship. And um, I said, I'm going to sit on this until I get some confirmation. (laughs) And then they... It blew my mind when I turned on the TV and they're reporting on it. And um, this enraged the people in Russia, of course. I watched video of call it a debate, an argument, and they said, Enough is enough. And we demand that you take your gloves off, so to speak. And as a result, Kiev, as I speak, is being bombed. And they're escalating this all over Ukraine. If you go to the Ukrainian-Poland border, they're destroying all the bridges so that all the armaments from the other NATO nations won't be able, supposedly, to get in. But my point here is um, this is an unthinkable act. I actually watched Russian TV as... um, um, The the enrage, it says, it's just been wretched up a level. All right, that's one. Number two, as a result, um, they've now, um, as I just said, um, are bombing Kiev and other major cities in Ukraine. But I think the third one is probably the most significant, but it doesn't deal with Russia, it deals with Shanghai, Shanghai has locked down 23 million people, not letting them out of their houses. No, not for food. They've been locked on now for two weeks. And um, finally, they've had it up to here. <laughs> so they're out in the streets protesting. Well, one gal was having her phone out, and she was videotaping a woman protesting getting arrested, being dragged off of this bus, and they were going to either take her to the compound or back to her apartment. But what they caught was um, a conversation going on because they're told that they're being locked down because of COVID. And what was caught on film, it was sort of a slip of the tongue by the police officer, and he said to the woman, don't you understand what's taking place? This isn't about COVID This is about you not working, making microchips, and we're at an economic war with, and we will be going to war against America, quote, unquote. And I've had that verified. To me, that is major, because basically, um, they are willing, if they're into this for two weeks for right now, um, people are gonna die. And we're talking 23 million people. So I told you I wouldn't um, uh, stay long on this, but I do want to keep you sort of in when something this major comes up. I want to. I'll talk about same thing on Sunday, five minutes. But I want you to. Um, this, we're here to remember and um, celebrate our sins being forgiven. Good place for an amen. Satan changed the mood a little bit, but still keeping you in the loop. And um, Jesus talked about it a whole lot more than I did about this time of sorrows, perilous times coming. Um, and he's the one who says, watch and wait, keep looking. And my question is, watch for what? <laughs> I didn't even touch on uh, Iran's deal getting the nuclear weapon, and the implications that that's gonna happen in, uh, with Israel. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, pieces of the puzzle coming together rather quickly. John chapter 19, where Tim read for us earlier, verse 17, I'm gonna put up on the screen why we are called Calvary Chapel. It is the place of the skull. And as we look at the first verse here, Okay, good. This is an older picture. The last time I was there, um, c- can you see the skull? And um, but over the years, there's been the erosion, um, and so th- the crown of the nose up here, right below the eyes, is it's no longer there. And um, but that's two thousand years old. So let's read verse 17. And he bearing his cross went out to a place called place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. It's also called Calvary, where they crucified him and the two others with him, one on one side and Jesus in the center. And now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read the title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Actually, it's right outside what we would call the Damascus Gate, which is the most famous of the gates when you go into the old city. You would come out, you walk one block to the north, and you look across the street, and you're looking at Golgotha. Then the chief priests and the Jews said to them, do not write the king of the Jews, but say, he said, I am the king of the Jews and Pilate answered and said what I have written I have written then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic now the tunic was without seam woven from the top uh, in one piece then they said among themselves let us not tear it but cast lots for it whose it shall be that the scriptures might be fulfilled which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What we're going to look at are the things that Jesus spoke from nine o'clock in the morning. He's going to speak to the Father three times, and then he's going to speak of himself, and then he's going to speak to Mary and John. And these will be the final words of our Lord um final words can be important. I remember um my final words this is in my notes this is off the top of my head right now, uh, with my papa when he was um, when he died of uh, cancer in two thousand and nine. I knew it was going to be the last time we were going to be together, and um, I thought, what are we talking about? This is our last time and he uh, has always loved music he was a bar- part of the barbershop quartetters in Oshkosh S-B-E-B-S-Q-S-A which means barbershop music <laughs> and so I said dad um, this has affected your voice and doesn't it bother you that you can't sing anymore and he looked at me and he said son it was one of the best things that could ever have happened to me because that event of taking away my voice has drawn me so much closer to the Lord I can't tell you but I said well what about if this this is probably the last time we're going to talk dad is there anything you want to say and he said yes I want you to go into my office top shelf there's two envelopes one's for pastor John Higgins he's going to do my funeral and the other one I want you to get up and read at my funeral. That sort of set me back. And so I looked at it, and um, these were my father's final words, and they were meant to be for family, and they were meant to be for friends. And on his gravestone, what he requested was simply a sinner saved by grace. And he wanted to leave it at that. That's That's how he wanted to describe his last words, a sinner saved by grace. On the day that Karl Marx died, on March Fourteenth, eighteen eighty-three, his housekeeper came to him and said, "Tell me your last words, and I'll write them down." Marx replied, "Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough." The last words came from P. T. Barnum is everybody with me with P. T. Barnum. As he was dying, he said, "What were today's receipts?" In other words, how much money did we make today? Napoleon said, chief of the army. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said at his last words, Jesus died for me. John Wesley, the founder of um, the Methodist Church said, the best of all is God is with us. Jesus was on the cross from 9 a.m. in the morning at noon it became dark, and he was there till three in the afternoon. And it's the reason that we have uh, our Good Friday Day service at one. By the time we're done fellowshipping and everything, it's pretty much around the three o'clock time. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 23 and look at verse 33. And we're going to look at um, the seven things that Jesus said during these six hours. In verse 33, it says, when they had come to the place called Calvary, well, we know it's called Golgotha, and we know it's called the place of the skull, but we are called Calvary Chapel because of Calvary. Here, they called the place of his crucifixion Calvary, and there they crucified him, and there were criminals, one on the right hand and the other one on the left, And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Jesus is going to speak three times to the Father. And this is the first one where he says, Father, forgive them. They really don't know um, what they're doing. This was the first statement from the cross I believe it was repeated several times. Um, I'd like to take you to Isaiah chapter 53 as we look at the first one this afternoon. And let me draw your attention to verse 12 of 53. This whole chapter um, talks about the affliction that was placed upon him. In verse 12 it says, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many. I would point out there that it doesn't say all. For God so loved the world that he died for the whole world. That whosoever so this implies free will. Um, as many as receive him, to them he gave power to become sons of God. And he made intercession for the transgressor. But it was a time where in this first uh, statement that we have, also in um, Psalm 22, if we go, well, we'll be getting there later. Let's go back to um, Luke 23. So the Lord's first statement, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Uh, That's one of the greatest understatements of all time. They had no idea. Um, The Bible says that Satan himself, if he would have known that this was going to be his defeat, he would have allowed it to happen. So he's different from the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit who are omniscient, meaning they know everything. Uh, Satan is not omniscient. There's things he does not know. There's things he does know. He knows the scriptures, doesn't he? Didn't he use the scriptures to tempt Jesus? He says, if you'll get down and worship me, we won't have to worry about going to the cross. But he said he wouldn't allow it to happen. So this first statement here is um, um, asking that they would be forgiven simply because of their ignorance. Uh, We know people today that really don't understand the gospel as a gift of an acceptance of something that was done that will change your life forever. We read... Charles Wesley wrote one of this in one of his hymns. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. On the other side of the coin, Paul, after he had walked with the Lord, and I'm glad it's Paul because he's my, one of my heroes, but the older he got with the Lord, the more he became aware of his sinful nature. For some reason, I find that encouraging. When I read in Romans chapter 7, where he says, this is Paul speaking, the things I should do, I don't do. And the things I shouldn't do, well that's what I do. And he says oh wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this? And then he says I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ that it was all accomplished on Calvary. Another good place for an amen. But because of that, the next chapter, chapter 8 verse 1 says therefore, therefore there's no condemnation. You can't Condemn yourself if you're going to accept Jesus' forgiveness. It becomes mute. Yes, it's true, you're a wretch. Yes, it's true, we do what we shouldn't do, and the things we shouldn't do, we do. But it also says, if you confess your faults, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you and remind you of them the rest of your life. You can let me get away with that. (laughs) And I will remember them no more. Boy, that quality I wish only the Father has. No condemnation. If you come to Christ with a fault and confess it, um, the devil's not going to let you get away with that. He'll be right on you. You sinner, and you call yourself a Christian, and you're going around doing this or saying that and adding this, what kind of Christian do you think you are? Well, the answer is I'm a wretched one but there's no condemnation because it was all placed upon Jesus at Calvary's cross. Father, forgive them. They would know not what they do. Let's look at um, um, Luke 23, verse 39. And we find through 43, the second thing um, Jesus says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying if you are the Christ save yourself and us but the other answered and rebuked him saying don't you even fear God seeing that you are under the same condemnation we indeed justly for we receive the due reward for our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong then he said to Jesus Lord will you remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus says to the thief on the cross Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want to go back to verse 42 and point out something. Then he said to Jesus, what's the next word? Lord. Oh, something happened. As he's watching the first thing that Jesus does, say, forgive them, they don't know what they do. That caught him off guard, got him thinking. And now he has come to the conclusion, you know what? I believe he is who he says he is. I believe he is the son of God. And so he turns to Jesus. Remember, this guy's got nothing going for him. No good works. Um, never was baptized. Never said the sinner's prayer. His sinner's prayer went something like this. Lord, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? To that the Lord responded, today. Today you will see me. You will be with me in paradise turn with me if you would to the book of Ephesians and let me just say the place that Ephesians chapter 4 the place that he is referring to is not heaven heaven and paradise are two different places and to develop this thought we need to go to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and I'm picking it up in verse 7 And we'll read through verse 9. It says, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 7, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean, but he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill or fill all things. When Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, he says, today, you're gonna to be with me in paradise. Well, we know that Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the man will be three days and three nights where? In the heart of the of the earth turn with me to Luke chapter 16 we'll continue the thought Luke chapter 16 is a story about the rich man and Lazarus and I'll just let the scriptures speak for themselves here there was a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus Full of sores was laid at his gates, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores and so it was that the beggar died, and he and was Belazarus um, and was carried by the angels to abraham 's bosom. Abraham's bosom is paradise. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, a place of comfort. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. And besides all that, there's a a gulf fixed between us and you, uh, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then the realization sunk in. There's nothing he can do. He's going to be in this state forever and ever and ever. I'm going to come back to it later when Jesus is gonna say, I thirst. But here, um, what is being pointed out, when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you're gonna be with me in paradise, he couldn't be heaven. We know he's gonna be in the heart of the earth, just like Jonah said, for three days and three nights, and so the son of man is gonna be there. Well, what was he doing? Here is another, because it's so late, my friends, take the opportunities, look for open doors to say do you really want to know what's going on in the world right now and use it as a hook sort of just to drag them in and give them a biblical perspective on on what's really happening but also let them know that hell is real. Don't be afraid to talk about hell. Some people literally need the hell scared out of them. Good place for an amen because they're so complacent. They gotta go through some radical devastating event. Otherwise they're like the rich man. Life goes on la 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 and so on and so forth. But the realization set in I can't get out of here. I'm going to be here forever. I wonder if he ever thought about his unsaved five brothers before. He is now. And he says well if that's the case and I'm not going anywhere I beg you. Therefore, Father, would you send him to my father's house? You see, I have five brothers that he may testify, we would say witness to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham told them basically this. They got the Bible. They've heard the Bible. They're either gonna believe it or not believe it. And that's what he's saying. They have the scriptures. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. He basically says, now I know my brothers, um, Abraham, Uh, they're not going to listen to the Bible. But if they see a miracle, if they see somebody come back from the dead, they'll repent. Now isn't it ironic that another man named Lazarus died in the tomb for four days and the Lord resurrected him. And it says many believed. But others said we got a problem here. We know we have to kill Jesus but here's this Lazarus guy walking around who everybody knows was dead. He's the living witness. We're going to have to kill him too. And so there was this division. By the way, the gospel always brings division. Think not that I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. That in one owns household, there will be those who will be for me and those who will be against me. So, if you're in one of those situations, be encouraged. Jesus said it was going to happen. My point here is when we read um, about the thief on the cross calling Jesus Lord, he says, Today, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I want you to go to the book of Matthew, chapter 27, real quick. Something very strange happened after those three days. We'll get to this uh, when Jesus was on the cross. Verse 52, it says the veil of the temple was torn. Notice it says from the top to the bottom. Who was doing the tearing? The Lord does. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their graves, and this is important, after his resurrection, we're gonna be in First Corinthians 15, talking about our new bodies on Sunday, what happens in the transition uh, from when you die, and explaining to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. After his resurrection, in other words, Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first one who literally died and literally came back to life again And they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I believe the Lord emptied paradise that day. And what did he do for those three days? It says he preached to the spirits that were there. And he also, as it says in Hebrews um, chapter 11, the faith chapter, it talks about these all died in faith not having received the promise. What promise? Promise of heaven. I prepared a place for you, and I'm going to take you there someday. He said the same thing to the disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions, and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. So as we considered these three days and three nights and the Lord telling him, um, we're going to paradise. Paradise is not heaven. I believe paradise was Abraham's bosom. I personally believe it's been emptied, and for some reason he allowed some of these that were resurrected to go appear to relatives in Jerusalem, maybe that weren't saved, weren't going to be saved, and they, maybe maybe they said something like this to the Lord. Lord, before you take us all the way up, do you mind if we have a little short visit with my Aunt Sue, and um, just let her see me alive? She knows I'm dead, but if she, if she got to see me, go ahead. It doesn't say all. It says many. So try to put yourself in a moment. Um, There's been a lot of uproar in Jerusalem over Jesus. And um, now he's been dead for three days. And after three days of Jesus being dead, you get a knock at the door. And sure enough, if it isn't Aunt Sue, (laughs) how do you do? (laughs) And it What kind of effect is that going to have on on an individual? It doesn't give us a lot of of detail here, but my point is it happened. The scripture clearly says the graves were opened after Jesus was resurrected first and appeared, it says they appeared to many in the holy city and appeared to many. All right, let us turn to, um, let's turn to John chapter 19. For the third saying that Jesus said from the cross, John chapter 19, verses 25 and 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Um, when Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, this is John, this is the way John always refers to himself, as that disciple whom Jesus loved, standing by, so there right at the foot of the cross, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now she's not telling her to look at him, but he's telling her to look at John. Then he said to John, the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Tells me something about John. He had a home in Jerusalem, and he was one of the uh, one of the disciples and um, um, a lot of the other disciples were not there for fear of the romans and Now we, we have here now when we look at Mary and at john Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, if you had stood by Mary at Calvary, and ask her, what does it mean for you to be near the cross? I think she would have replied, the cross to me is a place of reward. It's interesting to note that we may find Mary at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and I'm going to take you there in a moment, and at the end of the Gospel of John. We find her in John 2, and as long as i mentioned it, why don't you make your way back to John 2, and in John 19. But the two incidences are in contrast. In John 2, Mary is attending a wedding and is involved in the joy of a feast. In John 19, she's involved in the sorrow of a funeral. In John 2, the Lord Jesus displays his power. He manifests his glory. Uh, and turning the water into wine. But in John 19, our Lord Jesus died in weakness and in shame. Matter of fact, if you're in John 2, this is the first of seven miracles in the Gospel of John. There are seven miracles. There are seven I am statements. And in John 2, what I want to point out here is get a little sidetracked to talk about Mary. Um, because some denominations consider it's necessary to have Mary as a co-redemptress, and in such that she is to be um, honored above everyone or anything else. These are the last words recorded of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're in John chapter 2, and I'd like to look at verse Five, uh, verse four, um, they had run out of wine and um, Mary looks to Jesus and um, so she's basically hinting, do something about it. And then verse four, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now this is important because of who's talking. These are the final words of Mary. And his mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Can I say that to you? Whatever he says to you, do it. Says who? Says Mary. These are the last words she ever spoke. She didn't say anything about her being worshipped or her being a co-redemptress or a saint or anything else. Last words, Mary the mother of Jesus said, whatever he says to do. That's what you do. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 and 46. This is the fourth thing that Jesus said from the cross. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? We sing a song, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in, when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. This Preacher, this pastor is terribly inadequate to describe what is happening here when this has never happened. He had never ever been out of oneness and fellowship forever in times past. And I can't put that into words to even describe what being forsaken and what he was going through, but he had to be forsaken because God is holy and cannot be a part of sin. Sin will separate people from God. And Jesus literally became sin. One of the guys in men's prayer quoted this on on, uh, men's prayer. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might obtain the righteousness of God. The Great Exchange he took my sin, and he gave me his righteousness, but this had to be placed upon him because he's the only one qualified to do it. No other man has lived a perfect life. Nobody here has ever kept the commandments by the way, there's six hundred and thirteen, not just ten and um, I'm sure to sure I broke at least six hundred and four. 12 of them, <laughs> and we've, what does it say, we've all fallen short of the glory of God? Well, Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. No, the law is good. It perfects the soul, we're told in the Psalms. I haven't come to destroy it, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to be that spotless lamb, that's the Passover lamb, that had to be without blemish a male of the first year. There couldn't be any... If you took your lamb to be sacrificed, it was inspected. And you couldn't bring um, the leftovers that were ragged and shaggy and you weren't uh, interested in it anyway. No, you had to bring the best. And here we find that um, Jesus um, met that standard of perfection. Therefore, that's why we say Jesus is the only way. Oh, let me get sidetracked here just a little bit and share from the heart. The Bible predicts in this generation, there's gonna be more and more and more of a getting away from the absolute singleness and oneness of Jesus being the only way. The Pope himself is saying there's many different ways. You can be Muslim, you can be whatever, and it's nothing more than what we call universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. My friends, that's not true. The Bible says that um, Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father except by God. But that sure isn't politically correct today, is it? And you're going to find it happening more and more and more as the church seeks to, you know, compromise a little bit here, compromise a little bit there, and get away from this saying, it's the only way. You're gonna lose friends. Oh, you narrow-minded, bigoted, only way? You think a, a loving God would do something like that? Yeah, if you know your Bible at all, you see he's the only one qualified that could take away your sin, and the only way that you're getting to heaven is this pure sinless, the great exchange. And so um, we find here he had never been separated from God and he cries out again in verse um, uh, 45, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew why. He didn't want to go to the cross. He said so. But then he said, shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me to drink? I have to go. So not my will be done, but your will be done. And he did it. Behold the Lord Jesus Christ in three hours of darkness. I wonder if God was not saying that this was an hour of solemn judgment. Now is the judgment of the world, Jesus said. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. Our Lord's death on the cross was a a very solemn, serious, holy event. The darkness of that solemnness, the lamb dying for our sins. And he cries out, and this would have been the fourth thing that Jesus said. And he would have been addressing that to the Father. All right, let's go to John chapter 19. John 19, picking it up for the fifth thing that he said John 19 we're looking at verses 28 Jesus acknowledging that all things were now accomplished that the scriptures might be fulfilled I thirst and there was a vessel of sour wine was sitting there and there was a filled it with a sponge with sour wine and put it on Hyssop, and they put it to his mouth. We find here in this one, remember that for the first three hours it was in darkness, it would have been day. And it's always warm and not, if not hot, in um, Jerusalem. And um, so this is more descriptive, as I'm going to have you turn at this time to Psalm 22, which gives us a whole lot more detail of of uh, what he was actually going through. So if you turn to me to Psalm 22, uh, verses 14 through 18, again, this begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse one. But in verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me, my strength is dried up like a pot and My tongue clings to my jaws for you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of wicked has enclosed me. And here it is. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothes, they cast lots. And so we find um, in in Psalm 22 here, uh, I think a, a better description of what's taking place. I would suggest to you that, I'm gonna talk about hell a little bit. I would suggest to you that hell is a place of eternal thirst, where people will thirst endlessly and not be able to be satisfied. They will thirst for reality and satisfaction, but their thirst will never be quenched. Please note that there were several cups at Calvary. There was a cup of charity. They offered him wine mingled with myrrh, um, an opiate to deaden his pain, but he rejected it. There was a cup of mockery, uh, the soldiers offered him sour wine. Uh, there was a cup of, of uh, sympathy. Somebody put some vinegar on a sponge and lifted it to his lips. But the greatest cup of all was a cup of iniquity. He said in the garden, the cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? But he was thirsty. Let's go back to the rich man who went to hell. What did he say? Father Abraham, I beg you, would you please send Lazarus over here because I am in torment and just have him bring a little bit of water because I thirst. Well, this thirst, again, when reality set in, that wasn't going to happen, actually motivated him to have somebody go and witness to other family members. So this would have been the fifth thing that would have been said. Let's go to John 19 for the sixth. John chapter 19. And we're looking at verse 30. So this is right after the sour wine being offered to him. He had to speak this, but his tongue, was we're told, was stuck because no moisture. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. Jesus would have been about 33. Um, At the age of 33, most people are saying, it's the beginning. But at the age of about 33, Jesus was saying, it is finished. He did not say, I am finished. This was not a cry of defeat. It was a shout of victory. In the Greek language, John wrote the statement was one word with 10 letters. It's tetelestai. Perhaps that might be a new word, but tetelestai means paid in full. All of it is accomplished. And the work is done And everything that Jesus came to do. When he was first pointed out by John, what did John say? There's the Lamb of God. Who's going to take away the sins of the world? And now it's done. The reason that Jesus came is now accomplished, and he shouts to Telestai, paid in full. Now I want to get a little sidetracked here and talk about, um, uh, again, this being a one time event. So turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and 10. Hebrews 9. In Hebrews 9, verse 26, Paul's again explaining to the Hebrews as uh, their sacrifice and offerings was that of um, bulls and goats. And um, he has to explain to him that that won't take away, that the, the blood of bulls and goats can set aside sin, but it'll never forgive it and take it away. So if you're in Hebrews 9, verse 26, he then would have had to offer, suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once, have that underline, at the end of the age he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and after it is appointed for man to die once and after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once. To bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him. Are you eagerly awaiting for him? I know I sure am. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Go to chapter 10, verse 10, which basically tells us the same thing. But that we will have been sacrificed to the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every priest standing ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins, but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstools. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after uh, those days, says the Lord, when I put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Then he added their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Uh, My sidetrack here would to be getting into Um, transubstantiation and the Eucharist, which is um, a custom part of uh, Roman Catholic theology that says you're required, number one, to be in church, and if you're not, it's a sin, and also that you must receive the sacraments. And every time the priest takes a wafer, he holds it up and he says, behold the Lamb of God or something along those lines. And we call it transformation because they are taught that this is literally now turning into the body of Jesus Christ and it has to be done over and over and over again. Why? Because you received the forgiveness on Sunday, but you sinned on Monday, so you're going to need to be forgiven again next Sunday. And um, I hope this makes it very, very clear that there's no in-between like purgatory and it off a little bit at a time or praying for people, lighting candles, putting a couple bucks down when you do to shorten their time in purgatory? Don't you think if you believe that for a second that you would empty out your bank account? I mean, think about it, seriously. If it's your mother or your father or your best friend, if, we, if they believe that at all, I'm asking them, why, what do you got money in the bank for? Why, do, why don't you have your house up for sale if you believe this? I know it's a sidetrack, but again, in these last days, we have to be dogmatic about certain issues, and this issue here is satelistai, one offering for one time for all time, period. Good blood for an Amen. All right, glad we got that settled. Now we can go to um, the last one Is that we're going to look at is in um, Luke. Let's go to Luke 23. And we're looking at verses 43. No, oh, Just wait a second. Luke 46 is right. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, what did he cried out? I, He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. At this point, we find that the veil in the temple was rent. Up until that time, access to God could only go through with the priest. And he had to make sure that his sins were cleansed, or he couldn't even go behind the curtain, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, one time during the year that the high priest would make intercession for the sins of Israel. But now, when Jesus dies, it says, the veil of the temple between the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the holy place itself, there was this curtain. Some say, say it was a foot thick and extremely beautiful. But here we're told, that it was ripped from the very top to the bottom. God is making a statement. He says, you now have direct access. No, other mediator, you have direct access to talk to God. And when uh, Jesus said here, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. He's the only one that can do that. I wish I could do that. Okay, spirit, go home now but what happened here is um, it's over, my work here is done and I'm allowing myself to be taken back to the Father. Paid in full, work accomplished, bail in the temple rent and we have direct access anytime we want to. We should be asking a whole lot more, shouldn't we? He says, you have not because you ask not. Shouldn't we be asking a whole lot? <laughs> I mean, we should be talking all the time. Lord, will you do this? Lord, will you do that? Be in a constant state of, state of prayer. But uh, this is a quality that only Jesus has. He's the only person who's ever walked this earth that says, okay, you can go home now. And that's exactly what he did. And when he did, uh, he literally died. In the Bible, the word death is applied to believers very fr- frequently, it's called sleep. Christians who die are those who sleep in Christ. What happens when a Christian dies? Well, we're told in Corinthians to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. It's an instantaneous thing. Now on Sunday, we'll talk a little bit about your new body. I can't wait for mine. First Thessalonians 4. But when Jesus died, it was not sleep, it was death. He tasted the full experience of death. He confronted the last enemy, death, and courageously faced it. Um, It's sorrow, it's trial, it's pain, it's finality. He died actually. And when you stop and think that he died for us, and this is what I'll close up with, because he died for us, That means we do not have to be afraid to die ever. Matter of fact, let me take it a step farther than what Paul said. Paul says, bring it on. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? He talked to the churches. He says, I like being with you guys. I like hanging out with you guys, fellowshipping with you, and so on and so forth, but know this, I'd rather be with the Lord, and now, that that's all accomplished, he's given us this glorious hope that someday we're gonna see him. I tell you a lot of of my favorite Bible verses, but I really do have one favorite one, Revelation 22, four. It says, and they shall see his face. You can look at him. And what we're studying about today and what was accomplished 2,000 years ago, we're talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and it's a mind-boggling thing to comprehend. But we had communion today. Why? He doesn't want us to ever forget what he did for you and what he did for me. You do it with a cup. It's not—it's grape juice, okay? <laughs> it's not the real, like in Roman Catholicism, the little bread of Jesus. No, it's not. And it's something we do and we meditate upon it. Matter of fact, if we would have read it just a little bit farther, he says, every time you do this, I want you to examine yourself and remember, do well, you need to get something right? You need to confess a sin to me before we go ahead because this is what I died for. And it's, it is a solemn moment. And it's something that we'll continue to do first of the month. Oh, good Friday. We do it on Good Friday too. And so that we'll never, ever forget the wonderful work that he did, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will never perish. Amen? Amen. Let's say it and we'll close with a prayer. Lord, here we are. If it would be, while you were on the cross, you would still be a half an hour until you made this final statement, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. But Lord, we give you, and we want to pause on this Friday and remember. And uh, we look forward to that time, either through death or through the rapture of the church, that um, we would be well-pleasing to you. And we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for the great exchange that you took our sin, and you gave us your righteousness. And um, you've told us because of that that we cannot uh, fall into condemnation. And because we have this truth, your word says you'll know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Thank you for the freedom that you've given to us and thanking you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.